<laughs> Tell you what, you know, you miss me. You know, I've been gone. I haven't been on a Sunday night here, I think, in four weeks, and I just can't stop talking. I'm talking it every time I'm up here. So anyway, hey, we're starting a new series tonight called Legends and Misfits. Um, we weren't able to get the, the new bumper video uh, sent to us. We don't have it. Um, but I just wanted you to know this is a new series, not a standalone talk. And the idea of legends and misfits, we're going to be tracing some of the stories of some of the more prominent characters in the Old Testament. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, um, or if you, know, if you read the paper, if you follow the news, but uh, the world is kind of a mess. Things are, are really coming apart. I mean, men and women are rebelling against God, and then they're beginning to turn on each other. Husbands and wives are, are blaming each other. There's... there's Tension between male-female relationships. One's trying to figure out how to dominate the other. And if you, if you really pay attention closely, I mean, you'll see that there's, there's even brothers rising up against brothers. There's violence in families and murder and people turning on each other. And it actually goes quite a bit beyond that. I mean, there's societies and nations and people groups that turn on each other, that draw stronger lines and boundaries between us and them, and it's all kinds of division, and that's really the first 11 chapters of Genesis. When you, when, you lit, when you read the first 11 chapters of Genesis, that's kind of what's going on. That's God painting this picture, the storyteller painting this picture for us of a world gone mad, a world coming apart. When you, when you, when you kind of see, or how is the storyteller telling us this story? How, how, do we, how are we introduced to it? In Genesis 1 and 2, we see a good God setting his world in motion, creating a good God. There's so much, incidentally, that we could say about Genesis 1 and 2. Um, so much that maybe Genesis 1 and 2 has, people have tried to make it say things that it's not saying. Because Genesis 1 and 2, let me just say this because I can't resist. We often come to the Bible with questions we want it to answer. And we forget to first ask what the questions the text was originally trying to answer. We come to Genesis 1 and 2 and we want to know young earth, old earth, creation, evolution, law, or not evolution, we know that, that it does answer that. But, but, but you know, how, how long did this take and you know, how, scientifically and then did we, what should this tell us about you? Genesis isn't trying to answer those questions. If you were to say to any ancient pagan, how did we get here? They would have said, well, some God made the heavens and the earth. The question was not did God, the question is which God and what's he like? There's Babylonian accounts of, the, of their god Marduk creating the world, and he creates the world in a very violent, grotesque sort of way. There's a war among the gods, and he, he rips the guts out of one of them and flings them into this. I mean, it's, sorry, it's a bit gross. It's like a bad B-grade sci-fi movie. And so when you read Genesis 1 and 2, it's not trying to answer the question of, was it microevolution, macro, young? Or, Genesis 1 and 2 wants you to know a good god made the world on purpose, and called it good. And that's what you need to know. That's what we, we, we stand on. So the, the, the stage is sort of set to say, look, not only did a good God make this world on purpose and then call it good, but then he puts humans to be the ones to rule it. He says to Adam and Eve, he says to the man and the woman, he says, look, rule, rule over this. You and I hear the word rule and we think, oh, great, so we can do whatever the heck we want, right? It's my playground. No, no, the, the first act of ruling that Adam does that actually reflects God is when he names the animals. That's a way of saying, I'm going to reflect into this world God's order and God's wisdom and God's love. I'm going to bring order into it. 
A couple weeks ago, between the Christmas and, and New Year's uh, time, Holly got, my wife got real excited about organizing closets and basement storage rooms. That happened to any of you? It happened to me. And uh, all of a sudden, I got roped into you know, Tupperware containers and all that stuff. And, the, you know, I was like, okay, babe, I just want a little bit of a break. Let me just read for a while. Because my idea of a vacation is an hour with a book, you know. And uh, so I'm, I'm reading, and I get up after I, I finish reading it, I say, Babe, you won't believe what I just read. I just read so-and-so talking about how every time we reflect, uh, every time we bring order to the world, we're reflecting God's wise and loving rule. And she goes, see, that's what I've been doing. <laughs> and so we had a good, good laugh about that. But this is what we were made to do. And then you'll notice that after Adam and Eve rebel and they say, God, no thanks, we don't want to do this, we want to do it our way, you'll see that what they, they still keep ruling. How many of you know human beings still rule the world, quote-unquote rule? Rulers affect the way things go, don't they? We could, all, we could listen to story after story, especially in the southern hemisphere in Africa and other places where bad, wicked rulers have ruined life for lots of innocent people. Human beings do rule. But the problem is when human beings don't surrender to God's rule and then they try to rule, guess what they bring into the world? They don't bring order. They don't bring love. What do they bring? Chaos. They bring chaos. And this is exactly what Genesis wants us to see, is to say, okay, look, God said, let us make man in our image and let them rule. And you know what? The moment they rebel, that rule becomes uh, uh, chaotic. Instead of bringing, forming God, the, the parallel between God forming the world and then human beings deforming the world is striking. That's what you see when you read Genesis 1 through 3. And, 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 the, and the journey paces pretty quickly because in, in Genesis 3, the humans are rebelling. In Genesis 4, the brothers are murdering each other. In Genesis 11, there's a whole lot of other stuff that goes on between there, but for the sake of your children, I won't mention it. And then Genesis, but this in the Bible. And then Genesis 11 is this place where societies get fractured and split up because they've tried to rise up to the heavens apart from God. And all of this really is the Genesis storyteller setting the table for us. You could say that Genesis 3 through 11 is the story of God's good world coming apart. If you were kind of wanting a little more uh, sequence to this, you could say Genesis 1 and 2 is the story of God's good world coming to be. And then 3 through 11 is God's good world coming apart. The story of the person, the, the character we're looking at tonight, his story begins in Genesis 12. And what I want to say to you is that's not an accident. The person who's telling these stories, as these stories have been passed down from fathers to sons and daughters on to their children's children, all, the stories that are being passed down are not being passed down in, in a haphazard way. There, there's a narrative they're working with. And the narrative is this. God, a good God, made the world on purpose and He called it good and He put humans in charge, but humans rebelled and so chaos came into the world. The world is breaking apart. But what was God's solution to a world coming apart? Was it to zap from the outside and say, well, world, come together again? Or was it to find a man and to call a family from within it and to say, through this family, all the nations of the world will be blessed, i.e., through, from within, I'm going to put it all back together again. Genesis 12 
is the story of God working within His world to put it back together again. If you catch one theme tonight, we're going to look at four different moments in Abraham's life, but if you catch one thing tonight, this is the theme to catch, that God always works from within His world to rescue and redeem it. And whenever you, you and I think about, well, how can we be an answer to this problem? How can you and I be an answer to that problem? Part of the answer is not to say, it's okay to say, well, maybe we can give money, all oh, that's great. But a big part of the answer is to send someone within it. To send a Brian and a Carolyn Anderson. To say, go within it. Go inside it. Go and be there and see if the light of God will shine from within. God's plan is not a message in the sky. It's not a chorus of angels singing a special song with the sound of heaven. God's answer is to call a family from within it. And as we'll see, a family that's not got it all together. A man who makes plenty of mistakes. But nevertheless, a family from within. Now some of you are thinking, now wait a minute, Glenn. How can you say that choosing Abraham was God's plan to put the world together again? Because I don't know if you noticed this, Glenn, but Abraham and his descendants, i.e. Israel, they don't do such a good job. They fail, and doesn't God sort of have to bring in Jesus? And I would guess many of you look at the Bible this way, that the Old Testament is really kind of a sideshow, warm-up, it's the opening act, and you're just sort of waiting for the the band you came to hear. You know, you ever been to like a Christian music festival and you're at the main stage and you're waiting, when is, you know, whoever, uh, DC Talk back in the day, you know, when, when, are they, when is DC Talk going to take the stage, you know, like, and, you're, and there's someone else is sort of a local youth group band is doing something on the side stage and you're like, yeah, yeah, whatever, whatever. When is like DC Talk coming up with the Jesus freak stuff, you know? And that's how some of you view the Bible is the Old Testament is like, Sideshow, side stage, Abraham, Israel, whatever. It's kind of weird, kind of uh, graphic, really, you know, and uh, whatever. Let's just to see, get to Jesus, would you? And what I want you to see is that the Old Testament or the story of Abraham is not a side stage act, it's act one of God's story. Technically, I guess we could say it's act three. Act one is creation, act two is fall. Okay, act three, Abraham. But it's a drama that is beginning to unfold. Don't leave it intermission. Don't just say, I'll come in and catch the second half. You ever tried to join in on a show that, you know, like it's in season three? Or I never watched Lost or 24 or whatever, but I heard that if you don't start with season one, you'll be lost. You know, like it's, this is kind of like that. You want to jump in with Jesus, you've actually got to back it up and say, wait a minute, this begins God's salvation plan. You say the word salvation it begins with Abraham. Because Jesus, there's a reason Matthew, when he gives Jesus' genealogy, who does he trace Jesus back to? Abraham. He's trying to say there was a promise that God made with a man named Abraham, and God said, I'm going to use you, and through you, all nations are going to be blessed. God, my friends, does not forget his promise. He said he was going to use Abraham's family. Guess what? He did. It's Jesus. We spent a lot of time during Advent highlighting this. Jesus is the one. But see, through Jesus, we all join the story. The promise to Abraham was, look, in Genesis 12, I'll bless you 
so that through you all the nations will be blessed. Right from the beginning, was the plan to be just for Israel? No. Right from the beginning, the plan was that through Israel, Gentiles would come in. Well, how was that going to happen? These guys were unfaithful. So we could do a whole sermon on that. But Jesus comes in, and because Jesus comes from the seed of Abraham, he's the culmination of that story, and then says, hey, good news, because I'm act four, I've culminated the story up to this point. Guess who gets to be in Act 5? All of you and me. All of us. Jews and Gentiles. Paul goes on and on and on about Jews and Gentiles together. We're one people, one family. No more us and them. If you're in Jesus, you're in this story. So tonight, when we talk through the story of Abraham, I don't want you to hear it like you used to hear it in Sunday school maybe, which is, oh, that's a cute little Bible story that's got some little principles for my life. The Bible is not a book of principles for your life, okay? This is not like the manual you pull out when you're trying to figure out what to do with the, when the brake light goes out in your car. This is, not, this is a beautiful story that we have been invited into. So the story of Abraham is actually your family story. Want to hear about great-great-great-great-great-great-grandpa? Father Abraham. Okay. You get it. So that's what this is. All right. Turn with me, if you will, to Genesis 12, verse 1 through 4. We'll start there. I, I, I probably will be talking really fast tonight, so just buckle up. The Lord said to Abram, Leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation and will bless you and I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and those who curse you I will curse and all the families of the earth, there it is, will be blessed because of you. Abraham left just as the Lord told him and Lot went with him and now Abram, sorry, Abram left and now Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. Hebrews 11 verse 8 through 10, we heard it in our New Testament reading, but here it is again. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive as an inheritance, and he went out without knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived in the land he had been promised as a stranger, and he lived in tents. The point is, he was always ready to move. He lived in tents? This guy like an REI junkie? I mean, no, it's just that he knew he was on a journey. This is our family story. He lived in tents along with Isaac and Jacob who were co-heirs of the same promise. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations whose architect and builder is God. Listen, if God begins his story by calling a family out, I think it's fair to say that in Jesus, God is calling all of us out. God calls us out. In fact, did you know that the very word for church means that the very word that the old that the that the new testament writers use for church the ecclesia is this gathering this gathering of the called out ones oh this is our family story we're just like abraham we have been called out of our father's land so to speak whatever that means that means all other loyalties and ties are not just secondary they're they really are, are kind of irrelevant when you compare them to your allegiance now to christ you're in with Christ. And so God calls us 
out. First Peter 2.9 says this, you are a royal priesthood, a chosen generation, the one who's called out of darkness. This, could, this, this means so much for us. And we could talk on and on about it, but one of the things I want you to see is this. God meets you right where you are in your mess and calls you out from there. Some of you feel like, well, I, I don't know how I can join God's story because you just don't know the mess I'm in right now. I, I, it's true, I probably don't. Some of you I might, but most of you I don't. And I've got my own junk. The good news of the gospel is that in Jesus, God is calling us in our mess and saying, I see you, I see where you are, and I want to meet you where you are and then move you on to a new place. Incidentally, this is why you'll read many stories in the Old Testament. If you carry on in Genesis and read the rest of Abraham's story, you'll find him doing things that you're going to say, hey, wait a minute, I didn't think Christians could do that. You're right. (laughs) But this is just it. You're going to see things in the Old Testament that are not yet what the people of God should be, but God's taking them on a gradual journey. Some people say, well, hey, how come there's multiple wives and there's kids and there's sort of this weird thing of how to perpetuate the job? Hey, it's in the Bible. This is the problem you run into when you treat the Bible like an answer book or a handbook. It's not a book of principles. It's a, it's, a, it's a huge, massive story of God meeting a family where he was and slowly nudging them beyond it, saying, okay, hey, let's start here. Don't eat things that have blood in it. Why? Why? Just don't. Okay. And, and, and when you go to the bathroom, like, do that outside of where you dig your wells. Why? D- just don't. Okay, you know. And obviously, there's more obvious examples. You get to Jesus, and Jesus is the full revelation of what God is really like. But here's God meeting Abraham where he is and slowly nudging him out. But Abraham wasn't always perfect. You know, sometimes people like to say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of legalism. And I often want to say to them, did God call Abraham after he gave them the Ten Commandments or before? Which one? Before. Oh, yeah, yeah, Abraham first, then Moses. So there was no Ten Commandments when God called Abraham. Nope. So then why did God call Abraham? I don't know. Why did he call you? We call that grace. Are you telling me that the faith in the Old Testament is a, is a religion of grace? You bet it is, because it's the same God. It's the same God. And this God that calls Abraham calls you and me out of our mess and says, do you believe this? Will you take the risk to step out of this? But God, no, no, you don't understand. I, I, I. Holly and I, a few weeks ago, uh, took a couple nights to just sort of journal a bit for our, ourselves and for our kids and for the new year. And we were discussing some different decisions that may come up this year. And, and we were, you know, she was saying, like, I just... I wish we had more clarity on this, you know. And, um, and I said, you know, I feel like when I'm listening to you talk about this, you have clarity about this. Maybe we don't need to pray for more clarity. Maybe we need to pray for more courage. God's calling us out beyond this. So I don't know if I can do that. I don't, and some of you are saying, well, God, maybe I just need more clarity. Maybe you need more courage. But you know what? Your great, 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 great grandfather was, was Abraham. He left. You can leave too. But Abraham wasn't perfect. In Genesis 16, 1 through 2, 
you, you all know that there's this whole thing about God saying Abraham is going to have many descendants and he promises him a son. He says, how can I do it? I'm old. And then he goes and tells Sarah and she laughs and says, not with me, you're not. And so they take the servant, Hagar, and then they, you know, and uh, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had not been able to have children. And since she had an Egyptian servant named Hagar, Sarai said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from giving birth, so go to my servant. Maybe she will provide me with children. Now this it sounds funny to us. It wasn't as much of a stretch for them. They, they could see it as out of the same household. And Abram did just as Sarai said. So it's easy to sort of poke fun at Abram. So well, that was crazy. It's really not all that crazy for them. It would have been a way of saying, look, it's out of the same uh, household. But God doesn't bless the, the line of Ishmael with the fulfillment that he had promised. He says, no, I really meant you and Sarah. And the point is this, that sometimes in our zeal to follow God, we make mistakes. Now, that may not be true for you, I'm sure, but, but I could recount mine. I could think of the time where I've said, okay, Lord, maybe I don't need more clarity, maybe I need more courage. Okay, well, let's go. And then you run into a brick wall, and you think, okay, that's not working. Well, God... Maybe it's this, doggone it, and you, you know, and you sort of you push away forward. And the message here is, even when Abraham makes these mistakes, God is patient, and God can redeem it. God is patient and can redeem our missteps, because that's going to happen. Half the time we don't want to leave the land and follow and say yes to Jesus, because well, God, what if I mess up? This is your family story. Your father Abraham messed up too. Imagine being a Jew who thinks of Abraham as a legend and then to be hearing these stories and saying, wait, what? He did what? Are you serious? You mean there were times when they accused, they asked him, like Sarah was in, life was in danger and he lies and says she's not his wife but she's his sister? Like, what? The man of faith had moments of fear? <gasps> This is your father, Abraham. But your God is very good at redeeming our missteps. He's patient. As we go on in the story in Genesis 18, this is a beautiful moment where Abraham, uh, he's on his journey and he begins to pray for the cities in his land. And all of you know, maybe you're a little bit familiar with Sodom and Gomorrah, even if you don't know the story, you know that these cities have become a, a catchword for uh, w- wickedness. You know, if someone says, oh, yeah, you know, um, Las Vegas, yeah, modern-day Sodom and Gomorrah, you know, or whatever. We kind of, that's, you know, maybe, I mean, I don't use that, but you know, anyway, okay. Genesis 18, 20 to 24, and then verse 32. And then the Lord said, the cries of injustice from Sodom and Gomorrah are countless, and their sin is very serious. I will go down to examine the cries of injustice that have reached me. Have they really done all this? If not, I want to know. And the men turned away and walked towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing in front of the Lord. And Abraham approached and said, Will you really sweep away the innocent with the guilty? What if there are 50 innocent people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not save the place for the sake of 50 innocent people in it? And Abraham says, Don't be angry with me, my Lord. This is later in the story. They're going back and forth deal or no deal. And Abraham says, don't be angry with me, my Lord, but let me speak just once more. What if there are 10? And the Lord says, okay, if there are 10, I will not destroy it. This is remarkable in so many ways. One way that this is remarkable, one of the things that's remarkable about this story is that we have a God who is moved 
by you and your prayers. Uh, Sometimes we like to talk about the sovereignty of God in such a way that it almost appears that God is a computer that his programming cannot be changed. And we teach this sometimes in the doctrine of saying, well, God's immutability, God cannot change. God cannot change in his essence, but God is moved all the time by you and me. All the time. In fact, if you have ever read some bits of Greek mythology or comparisons of different pagan accounts of their gods and things like that, the, 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 um, what you see the direction going is what the gods do in the Greek pantheon, what the gods do up here is what affects what happens down here. So if the gods are fighting or crying, it rains or, you know, whatever. The remarkable thing about the stories the Hebrews told is that what we do down here affects the God up there. Now, that's beautiful. That's, that's really different. This is one of the many reasons why we say these people that, that wrote down these stories and told these stories were really different. Yeah, they were. Where did they come up with this stuff? Maybe it really happened. Oh. <laughs> and it's a bit of an encouragement to you and I when we pray that God, in, in a real relationship, do any of you like to be in a conversation with another person where all, you feel like the whole lunch or the whole coffee was them trying to persuade you on something? No, right? It's probably the reason you don't open the door when like, someone's trying to sell you something. Or you're like, yeah, you know, I just, <laughs> okay. Nobody wants, that's not what we call a relationship when one person says, I will not let you move me, I just want to move you. But the God in the Bible says, I want you to become like me, no doubt about it, I want you to submit to me, no doubt about it, but I want you to know that when you pray and cry and protest, it moves me. I hear you. I'm listening. It hurts. The God in the Old Testament story is a God that gets sad. Yes, there's a Gilgamesh account of a flood, but there's no account of that God being sad to do it. But in the Genesis God, that God doesn't want to do this. He's reluctant. He is, as Moses would say later, slow to anger, but abounding in compassion. And so Abraham realizes that God hears our prayers on behalf of others. One of the things Pastor Brady said this morning that I thought was really great is, it's very difficult to stay angry at someone that you're praying for regularly. <laughs> you know? So yeah, that's really true. If we, I mean, what would, you, what, what would you and I have been like in Sodom and Gomorrah, you know? I curse this city. Yeah, God, do it. You want to destroy it? Tell me when. Can I be involved? <laughs> and there are little things that pop up in us. You know, you see a mom... Uh, driving with a cigarette in her hand and two kids in the back seat, and instantly you think, oh my gosh, I just can't believe that she... Why not stop and say, God, do you have mercy? Would you find, can we find a way to show compassion to the ones who... Because the response towards the sinful city is not to say, yeah, they're sinful. Of course they're sinful. They're, not, they're outside of the community of God right now. You don't, you don't hate the world for being the world. That's what the world is. What you do is you pray for the world like Abraham does. He says, God, would you be merciful? I know you are. Could you help us find a way to spare this? Christians in a city ought to be good news for that city. 
The church in Colorado Springs ought to be good news for the people of Colorado Springs. Not bad news. Not the people that are saying, yeah, God, judge them. Yeah, God, Sodom and Gomorrah, that's what they are. We ought to be the ones that are saying, God, 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 wait, 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 how, how can we? Let them see love and compassion and mercy. And this is what Abraham does. The most famous story of Abraham, no doubt, is the story of Abraham and Isaac. In Genesis 22, it begins the story by saying, After these events, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham answered, I'm here. And God said, Take your son, your only son, whom you love. This, by the way, is the first time in the Bible that a human relationship is described with love between it. Not to say that it wasn't there before, but God's emphasizing it. Go to the land of Moriah, offer him up as an entirely burned offering there on one of the mountains I will show you. Most of the time, you and I hear this story, and the thing we just can't get over is, how could this God do this? Why would this God, I mean, what kind of a God? Sometimes you'll talk to a person that says, you know what, I'll tell you why I don't believe in your God. Because your God thinks it's cool to ask people to kill their sons or daughters. I, there's no way I believe in that God. Can I tell you something? The rabbinic tradition of Abraham's family was that his father was an idol maker. Many, many pagan gods asked for child sacrifices. It's horrific. I suggest to you that what Yahweh is doing is meeting Abraham where he is. There's only one way Abraham knows to show devotion to a God. That's to be willing to offer up your son. And so Yahweh speaks to Abraham in a way that he would understand. He says, look, would you give me your son? And Abraham hears, oh, he wants to know how committed I am. All right, all right, I'll do it. And then he gets to the top of the mountain and Yahweh says, no, this is not what I'm like. The remarkable thing of the story of Abraham and Isaac is not that Yahweh asks him to give Isaac, but that Yahweh won't let him give Isaac. That's the twist in the story. That's the surprise ending that M. Night Shyamalan couldn't draw up. That's the moment where you're like, what? He doesn't kill him? How could it be? Because God is revealing himself to Abraham and he's saying, all right, let's start here. You understand this very violent expression of devotion and I'm telling you, I'm not like that. But it goes beyond this. Because obviously the ram in the thicket is a shadow of Christ. When Abraham says, the boy and I are going up to the mountain to worship, that's the first time the word is translated worship in our Bible. That's the first time that shows up in our English Bibles. And so many a sermon has been preached about how worship is about being, you know, sacrificing even your son, you know, or giving your most and all this. Listen, do you know the point, if the point of the story is not that God asks for Isaac, but that God provides the sacrifice, then isn't it true that the worship God wants from you is not about your sacrifice, but about the one He gave. So it's not about coming to worship and say, well, what am I going to sacrifice for God? Maybe I can sacrifice. Look, 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 look. That's all fine as a response, but it doesn't begin there. Worship is defined by God saying, I've provided the sacrifice. Actually, I am the sacrifice. Abraham sees the goodness of this God because he realizes this is nothing like what I've ever there are still gods today who ask people to sacrifice their children on their altar. It's the gods of money, ambition, success. You name it. 
There's lots of gods that ask you to lay your children down on the altar to worship them. But our God does not. I think you can chew on that as parents and thinking about what it means to serve God. But the thing to really see here is that God reveals His goodness by providing the sacrifice. Just as He did for Abraham, He does with us. Let's close. I'm sorry for being four minutes over tonight, but here's how I want us to close as we pray tonight. It's often been said, well, hey, you know, this story is not about you. Well, that's true. The story in the Bible is not, first of all, about you. It's about God. It's about God acting within His world to redeem it. But here's the thing. While the story is not about you, the story includes you. This this God invites you into it. This God invites you to join it. Take your place on the stage, paging, paging John, paging Sally. Take your place on the stage. This is your scene. What? No, I know I'm not in this play. Yes, you are. No, no, I thought the pastors were in it. No, no, you're in it. Paging Greg, paging Bob. Wait, wait, what? This is your scene. You join the Abraham story. You join it because of Jesus. You say, well, God, Glenn, I'm not perfect. Neither was Abraham. The Bible doesn't hide the flaws of the people from us. Do you ever think, why isn't the story of Abraham told like a true legend story? Why couldn't he have been like the sort of the Paul Bunyan of the Old Testament, you know, like just legendary? Because it's not the point. The point is God habitually chooses people who are fearful and scared and make mistakes and second guess. That's just the kind of person he chooses. Genesis tells us that Abraham finishes his life well and is gathered up to his ancestors. I was talking with Pastor Brady in the hallway and I said, man, I love what you said about how the story doesn't end with us. And he looked at me and he goes, yeah, it's always unfinished business, isn't it? That's true. That'll help you sleep at night. It's always unfinished business. You're not going to save the whole world in your lifetime. But would you come on the stage and join the scene? Would you join the story at this moment, right here, right now? Do your part. You're not going to finish the story. No, no, no. Christ finishes the story. Christ is on the stage even now. Would you join him? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you work from within your world to rescue and redeem it. Thank you that you've chosen not to send angels, but to choose a family. And from this family comes your son, And because of your son, we're all part of it. God, you know there's many, many moments where we don't feel worthy of it. We don't feel like we could really join the story. Yet, would you give us the courage to believe that we're in it? This is us. Show us the ways that you're calling us out. Show us the ways that you can redeem our missteps. Show us the way to pray for our city, and for those around us to look beyond ourselves. Show us the ways to trust that it's your sacrifice that matters, not ours. In the end, it's not all the weekends we gave up or all the nights we stayed up praying. In the end, it's Jesus. It's Jesus that shows your goodness. So we glorify Jesus tonight. Make us a people 
of his story. Show us how it unfolds in us tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, everybody. I promise not to be so long-winded next week. God bless you.